0: We worship God again now in the reading of His Word, and you can see in your bulletin that we're turning now again to John's Gospel, chapter 12. I say again, because John is where we were last week as well. Last week, this week, Lord willing next week, we're in the midst of, I suppose, what might be called a three-part sermon mini-series, it's a little series on some of the I have come, statements of Jesus that we find in John. To be sure, whenever you read John, you can't help but be struck by the I am statements of Jesus. And rightly so, he made remarkable claims about his identity. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. And that's just a sample But then you've also got these I have come statements that he made. And they're remarkable too. Because he made these claims not only about his identity, I am, but also about his mission, his purpose, I have come. This is why I came. Meaning, this is why I, the Son of God, came down from heaven to earth. Whenever a king visits a slum, That's unusual. That's provocative. It provokes the question, what are you doing here? Well, Jesus was the king of the universe, and he visited this cursed world. He even visited it by becoming one of us in this world, and it's as if we want to go up to him and ask him, what are you doing here? Why have you come here? And he tells us, in these these I have come statements in John, he answers that momentous question. We looked at one of them last Sunday, December 25th, you may recall. This one was later in John. This is John 18, when he's being interrogated by Pilate. And he says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And he said that to a man, Pilate, who was not particularly interested in truth or clear on the concept. For this purpose I have come, to bear witness to the truth. In other words, he was born, he came to be a prophet. To bear witness to the truth about God and his holiness and about man and his sinfulness and about himself, Jesus, and his saving work. He came to be a prophet. He was that, and he still is. So that's what we looked at last week. And as I mentioned last week, that's the truth. But that's not the whole truth about why he came. Because you've got this whole family of I have come statements in John. and Among other things, he also had this to say. That he'd come not only to be a prophet, but also to be a priest. He came to be a priest. And what made him a priest, first and foremost, is that he came for this, to lay down his life for his people, to make a sacrifice of himself on the cross for his people. And that brings us to our I have come Statement this morning, which is in John chapter 12. So last week we found our purpose statement, our I have come statement, in the midst of a conversation, really an interrogation that's going on between Jesus and Pilate. This week we find our purpose statement in a very different kind of conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. So John chapter 12, I'm going to pick up reading at verse 12. And I'll read down through verse 36. But in the midst of all of this, it's verse 27. I'll tell you right now, it's verse 27 where we're going to train our attention. 27. But let me pick up at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to it. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the light. and We believe in you as the light. So that we are now indeed the children of light. And believing that to be true of you and of ourselves, we ask you even now for illumination yet again. For the light is here and the word to be seen. Open our eyes yet again to behold that wondrous light. Amen. There is something rather significant, I'd even say rather poignant, about the idea of gathering For the worship of God on the morning of New Year's Day. Think about that. Here we are gathering for God's worship on the morning of New Year's Day. One of the first things we do in the whole of 2023. It's a morning when we're especially mindful of the passing of time. Another page has turned on the calendar and to worship God on a day like that in a moment like that is to be reminded and it is to confess that God is the God of time he made it he sustains it he rules it he is the potentate of time as we say in our hymn this ever-flowing stream Of moments and minutes and hours and days and months and years and whole generations. God is the God of time. And not only that, but then we take it a step further. We take it personally. Christian, you can say not only that God is the God of time, but that your God is the God of your times. He made you. He sustains you, he rules over you in the midst of that ever-flowing stream of your own moments and minutes and days and years. Which is why you can have a sense of purpose, a sense of mission about your various roles and relationships and responsibilities and challenges that you face in any given moment. In time, Christian, you can say that your God has positively called you to face whatever it is that you're facing in any given moment in time. Brings to mind what Mordecai said to Esther when she was trembling in the face of a challenge. He said, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this, The fact is, she had, he understood that, and he wanted her to understand that, and she did, for such a time as this. I suppose it even ties into what I was saying last Sunday. You know, those moments when you're facing some challenge, and, and you're confident you're not going to shrink back from it. You have a sense of purpose and mission about it, and so you say, I was born for this. In other words, I was born for this moment in time. Right now, that sense of purpose and mission right now, I can't shrink back from this right now. This is my time. And Jesus said that. And he said it right here in John 12. He said it when it was time for him to die. John chapter 12. They've come to Jerusalem. Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They've come for the feast of the Passover. And they are not alone, Jesus and his disciples. John tells us that a large crowd had come to the feast. Of course, it had. It was that kind of feast. The crowds are fascinated. As Jesus enters, many of them are cheering as Jesus enters. The Pharisees are frustrated because so many are cheering. All sorts of folks have come to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, some of them Gentile converts. And those folks want to meet meet Jesus. Of course they did. No wonder they did, given what they must have heard about him. So some of these Gentile converts want to meet him. And they say so. And so some of Jesus' disciples come to him, and they tell him that, that there are these Gentiles who want to meet him. And then Jesus answered them, although his answer feels like one of those answers that isn't really an answer, at least not a direct one. Because his reply is to say, verse 23, his reply is to say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So, just saying that much, there's all already the sense of drama, a sense of culmination in what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And, of course, there's something positive and uplifting and, and thrilling about the idea of glory... The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But then what does he say next? He goes from talking about glory to talking about death. Look at verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So that, right after he talks about glory, he talks about death. That's the kind of glory this is going to be. So this hour that's come, what is this hour? It's going to be the hour of his death, a death in which he is going to be glorified. And that is why he came. And so verse 27, look at the purpose statement. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So there is our shining, I have come, mission statement. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. So it's not just that he'd come down from heaven to earth. It's more than that. It's that he'd come down and then to this very moment on earth, this hour. He's saying, for this purpose, I was born. My life has been headed for this. My life has been directed toward this from the beginning, toward this hour, the hour of my death, in which I shall be glorified. And so he realized it would make no sense for him now to to repudiate this hour and all that it held for him. Now he knows that he's got to press in and follow through. This is his time. So we notice that here in John 12. This mission statement I've come to this hour. What I want to do now is unpack a little bit what that hour meant meant for Jesus, what it entailed, what it involved, and then we can reflect upon what it means for us. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. What more can we say about it? Well, first of all this, because it was his death, first of all this, it would be an hour of atonement. An hour of atonement. He didn't come to die just so he could know what we go through when we die and for no other reason than that. No, he came to die to save us. To die a death that had redeeming significance, which is something that cannot be said about our deaths. Here we can bring in another one of Jesus' purpose statements. This is one from Mark chapter 10. He says, For even the Son of Man came... Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's another statement as to why he came. There it's put in the third person, not the first. He says it's the Son of Man. But it's a purpose statement all the the same. Why did he come? He came to die. And not just any death, but a death to ransom. A death to atone. So if we can imagine ourselves going up to Jesus there in Jerusalem or at any point in the course of His earthly ministry with some sense of who He really is and saying, what are you doing here? That's part of the answer. That's a huge part of the answer. The answer is, I'm here to die. And I'm here to die a death that will save my people from their sin. So that's the first. This is an hour of atonement that he's come for. Here's the second thing we can say about it. Related to the first. It was to be for Jesus an hour of obedience. An hour of obedience. He says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Whose purpose was it? It was his father's purpose for him. And Jesus obediently embraced that purpose as his own. Here we can bring in yet another one of these I have come statements. I told you there are several of them. If you back up to John 6, you don't need to turn there. I'll read it for us. But John 6, verse 38. Here's another one of them. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, verse 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent him. It was his Father who had sent him. And among other things, it was his Father's will that he go to the cross. So that's why I say this is an hour of obedience. This is also why I read Psalm 40 for us earlier in our service. Believe it or not, Psalm 40 in the Old Testament, you might say that there is an I have come statement of Christ in Psalm 40 ahead of time. Because in Psalm 40, David says this. I read it earlier. Listen to it again. Psalm 40, verse seven and eight. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. So that's Psalm 40. It was David who wrote that Psalm. There's David with his own, I have come statement. And it is this, I have come, O God, to do your will. Well, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament picks up on that psalm, picks up on those verses and says, ultimately it was Jesus who said that. Hebrews 10, verse 7. The writer takes Psalm 40 and applies it to Jesus sees Jesus in those words. Hebrews 10, verse 7, speaking about Christ. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This, for Jesus, was to be an hour of obedience. Like Paul says in Philippians 2, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So the first was an hour of atonement. The second was an hour of obedience. And now here's the third. It would be for Jesus, and he knew this now, an hour of agony. An hour of agony. Obedience to his Father's will would not be pleasant. Because remember what he says, Now is my soul troubled. John 12, he's saying that. Now is my soul troubled, and yet what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And he goes on to say, no, I've come for this. But his soul was troubled. It's like what the other gospel writers record for us about Jesus in the garden. Luke 22. Jesus is there in the garden. Drops to his knees. Says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke 22. That wasn't a man who was playing a part in a play for the sake of his disciples. They were asleep anyway. This isn't a man who's just reading from a script. This was real. He meant it. He felt it. As it dawned on him, what was in store for him, he was in agony. He was deeply troubled. He must have had some sense now. Of what it would mean for him, what it would be like for him the next day to take upon himself the guilt of his people, to have poured out upon himself the wrath of his father. Of course, he was troubled. He, he wasn't troubled in the sense that he was at all inwardly drawn to disobedience, but he was certainly troubled. And of course he was in the sense that he had some inkling of just how awful it would be for him. Of course he was troubled. I mean, this whole complex of events, deserted by friends, interrogated by fools, beaten by soldiers, crucified between criminals, but the main thing in all of that, far, far worse than all of that, was what it must have been like In those hours on the cross, for the incarnate Son to experience the wrath of his Father. For this purpose, I have come to this hour, and he knew it would be an hour of agony. Here's the fourth. He also knew that it was to be an hour of judgment, an hour of judgment. Skipping down to verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now. Even that is a loaded time word. Now is the judgment of this world. When Jesus went to the cross to pay for the sins of his people, there was in that moment a thundering divine judgment against the world. The world in its sinful rebellion against God. When they crucified him. You know, they they put that sign over him that bothered some folks. That sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Well, can't you can't you imagine another, another sign over him with two lines on it? One, this is what sin has done, and two, This is what sin deserves. There wasn't really a sign like that over him. But with the imagine of faith, you can see it. This is what sin has done. They crucified the Lord of glory. And this is what sin deserves. The wrath and curse of God. So when Jesus died, no, it wasn't. It wasn't the last day. Here in 2023, that day still hasn't come. It wasn't the very last hour in history. And yet, when Jesus died, there was something about that last day that was brought forward and pronounced a divine sentence pronounced against the world, a foreshadowing of what that last day will hold. An hour of judgment. Here's a fifth, and I'll just say there are six of them. Atonement, obedience, agony, judgment. Here's a a fifth. It was to be an hour of victory. And we need to bring that one in too, alongside all the others. This would be, for Jesus, an hour of victory. Because after he says, now is the judgment of this world, verse 31, then he says, now, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's talking about Satan. Jesus calls him there the ruler of this world. Elsewhere, the apostle Paul calls Satan the God of this age. Elsewhere, the apostle John can say about him, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And none of them, Jesus, Paul, John, obviously none of them is giving Satan too much credit. They're not getting carried away by putting it in those ways. In God's plan, under God's sovereignty, Satan had and still has real power. Awful power. In a sense, presiding power and yet something something happened when jesus went to the cross something decisive happened with respect to satan's rule no he was not in that moment destroyed or entirely dethroned and yet There was such a decisive blow leveled against his power that Jesus could say, now, now will he be cast out. Now, it's only a matter of time before he is destroyed in the end. Here we can bring in another mission statement. Why did the Son of God come into the world? Why did he appear? Well, listen to 1 John. So now not the Gospel of John, but the first letter of John. 1 John 3.8 says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God was to destroy the works of the devil. In other words, to undo what the devil had managed to accomplish. To restore what the devil had managed to ruin. And the hour of his death, Jesus' death, turned out to be the hour of of the greatest advance in that conflict. An hour of victory. And that brings us to the last of them. Because Jesus' death would be all of the things that we've just noticed. Atonement, obedience, agony, judgment, victory. Well, then, one more. It would be an hour of glory. An hour of glory. Remember, that's where we began in verse 23. He says, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Here is the beautiful paradox of the gospel. To the naked eye, what happened to Jesus, what they did to Jesus of Nazareth would not have looked glorious. To the naked eye, it wasn't glorious, it was dreadful. And Isaiah the prophet pointed forward to the day, to the hour, when that would be the case. Because Isaiah, in chapter 53, wrote in the past tense, looking forward to the future, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. To the naked eye, this does not look glorious. This looks disgraceful. But that's just it. We don't look at that hour with a naked eye. We look at it with the eye of faith. And faith sees glory, the glory of Jesus Christ. Because his humility was displayed. His willingness to kneel down and serve. And his faithfulness was on display because he'd made a promise and he followed through on it. And his love was displayed. Greater love has no one than this. That he laid down his life for his friends. And believe it or not, even his power was displayed in what must have looked like utter, unmitigated weakness. His power was on display. Because Jesus said, and we just heard this in verse 32, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people, to myself. Because he had that power to work in hearts and minds so as to draw sinners to believe in him, so as to open their eyes to see the truth, to open their minds to understand this hour. So yes, the hour of his death, and the eye of faith sees it, was was an hour of glory. Humility and faithfulness and love and power are all on display. So, brothers and sisters, let us learn well today. For this purpose, he came to this hour. And what an hour it was. Atonement, obedience, agony, judgment, victory, glory. And let me urge you today, Christian, each and every one of those six is something for you to take heart, something for you to take personally. It was an hour of atonement. Yes. Christian atonement for you. Which is why for you there is therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8:1. He bore the wrath of God. There will never be an hour like that for you, Christian, because there was that hour for him. Also, an hour of obedience. That's something for us to take personally, too, because in his obedience, Jesus leads the way. To be sure, his was an act of obedience that we're not called precisely to repeat. We can't lay down our lives to save anybody. Thankfully, we don't have to. But still, in his obedience unto death, even death on a cross, there is for us an example, and we're called to follow in his steps with that kind of devotion to our Father. Every hour that we're given, we're also given for obedience. If you do the math... Or if your calculator does it for you, there are 8,760 hours in 2023. And at this point, 10 of them are behind us. So we've got 8,750 left and every hour that we're given. We're also given for obedience, and we can look to Christ for that. I know that can be a daunting thing to think about all of these hours that stretch out ahead of us and the calling to walk in obedience each and every one of them, but Christ is gracious. deals kindly. Christ, who came down, still reaches down by word and spirit and lifts us up that we might walk that way. And as for it being an hour of agony, Take that personally. What that means, Christian, is that there is one who understands. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. We have one who is most able to sympathize as we are in agony in our own way. You think about those moments uh, when you're, you want to write a note to somebody who's suffering. And, and those can be very difficult moments just to figure out what to say. And you, you might even just sit back in your chair staring at a blank email where you haven't written anything yet or maybe even a blank piece of paper on the table in front of you. Not sure what to say. Well, if nothing else... You might find some way to say something like this: I cannot begin to imagine what you're going through. I cannot begin to understand, but He does. Jesus does. I'm, I'm staring at a at an empty email or a blank piece of paper, feeling like I have nothing to say that's when I remember I can point them to the one who has so much more to say than I do. I can point them to the one who understands. He understands your agony, your pain, and he understands it because he underwent agony for you of a sort far deeper and darker than we will ever have to undergo ourselves. So that becomes not only comfort for us, but also guidance for us when it comes to comforting others, you can always point them to the one who came for that hour so that they might find themselves comforted in theirs. And as for it being an hour of judgment, Christian tremble, tremble. Two thousand years later, you can still hear the echoes reverberating, the echoes of that thundering divine judgment that was pronounced when Jesus died. Tremble for the world and pray for the lost because a day will come when it won't just be an echo anymore of of past thunder but it will be the sound of new thunder on the last day. It's an hour of victory. Christian, take heart. It's an hour of victory. Your most fearful enemy, the evil one, you've never seen him, but you've heard about him in the word of God. Your most fearful enemy is the devil, and your Savior has cast him Out, Your Savior has struck the decisive, fatal blow on your behalf so that now it's only a matter of time. There is joy in that for you, Christian. There is liberty in that for you, a proper sense of triumph. And finally, an hour of glory. Christian, do you know what that means? What it means is that you have been given eyes to see it, to see what the naked eye would not have seen that day during those hours. You've been given eyes to see the humility and the faithfulness and the love and even the power of Christ who died. And he has exercised that power so as to draw you to himself. Behold the cross. Behold the glory of Christ in that hour. So, brothers and sisters, no doubt that there is, as I was saying in the beginning, there is something significant, even poignant, about our gathering for God's worship to begin the new year. Time marches on and God is the God of time. And Christian, your God is the God of your times and you can fix your eyes on Christ and be reminded That it was true of him first and all of his hours, including this one. And we take that with us into a new year. We take Proverbs with us too. Wise man in Proverbs says this, Proverbs 27 verse 1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Proverbs 27 verse 1. Do not boast about 2023. For if you do not know what a day may bring, you certainly do not know what a collection of 365 of them will bring. But you can know this. Jesus faced his hour so that now in him we can face ours Jesus faced his hour so that now by faith in him we can face our own. so let us trust and march into 2023 together. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you, remembering that hour, the hour of your death and all that it meant. And we would take personally all that it meant mindful of what it means to us today. Thank you that you came for that hour and did not shrink back from it. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.